This is week number 19 in our study of the book of Daniel. And last week we came right to the end of uh, chapter 5. And you remember chapter 5 is all about the exchange of power um, from the Babylonian Empire into the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, At the time of the setting, which is um, 25 years, 23 years, after Nebuchadnezzar has moved off the scene, um, the the uh, throne of the kingdom is really held by two men, by Nabonidus and his son, Belshazzar. Uh, they're both king. They're both called king. They both act as king. But for the greater part of this time period that they reigned, um, Nabonidus is gone. He's uh, out in the Arabian desert doing excavations of ancient ruins from the previous Babylonian eras because, you know, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar came into power in in Babylon, that was not the first dynasty or empire that was in um, that area of Babylon. Matter of fact, there had been some thousands of years before Nebuchadnezzar came on the scene. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar was out uncovering, was those ancient ruins. And so Belshazzar was acting as king and he called for a great feast of all his nobles. During that feast, they um, did um, something that was not pleasing to the true God in that they brought the, um, the cups and the utensils that had been captured in the, uh, back in 586 when they destroyed the temple that Solomon um, built. They brought all those utensils to Babylon, and during this feast, they break them out and they begin to drink wine from them. And as a result of that, a hand appears out of nowhere, writes an inscription on the wall that no one can interpret, except for Daniel, of course. So Daniel comes in and interprets it, and basically what that inscription was is that your kingdom is done. It's going to be divided, and you're no longer in power. And it wasn't like it was going to be undone. It It has already been counted, weighed, you've been judged, it's done, it will be divided. And so we know that that same night that Belshazzar was killed, probably was the next evening, because the party (coughs) probably went all through the night, and so when Daniel uh, read the inscription, it was probably daybreak. And so that evening, um, Belshazzar is killed by the invading Medo-Persians, and the kingdom is over with. And so that's where we'll pick up this morning. Um, Some of the commentaries that I read, you know, they're old, right? And it's kind of interesting because they were talking about, uh, in relation to the end of chapter 5, they were talking about chapter 6, verse 29. You notice there is no 29th verse of chapter 6. What they use, they use the last verse of chapter 5 to be the first verse of chapter 6. It took me a while to figure that out because all these commentaries talking about 6... Uh, one, which doesn't say what my 6-1 says, and 6-29, which doesn't exist. And so um, <clears throat> all, the cha- all the chapters and all the verses are there. They're just numbered differently. So we'll begin reading this morning um, in chapter, five, uh, chapter 6, in the first, just the first five verses. And then we're going to back up a little bit and look at those last two verses of chapter 5. <clears throat> I'll start by reading the last verse of chapter 5, 531 into chapter 6. There the scripture reads, So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evil or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. 
Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. <clears throat> okay, so you, you see here, um, back in chapter 5, verse 30, that Belshazzar is killed that very same night, and then Darius the Mede uh, received the kingdom. So this is, you remember all the way back in chapter 2, with the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, that he forgot about, that Daniel had to remind him what he actually had dreamed and then interpret it for him. That's what went on in chapter 2, right? The, Dan- <clears throat> the king had this dream, couldn't remember it. That's why he asked him to speak it to him and also to interpret it for him. And so Daniel did all of that. And you remember back there, there was a head of gold, and Daniel interpreted that to be um, Nebuchadnezzar himself and his kingdom, the head of gold. And then beyond that, there were arms of silver, then a chest of bronze, and then legs of iron, and then feet of iron and clay, representing successive kingdoms that would come through the ages of men. And then ultimately, at the very end, there was a a stone that was cut without hands that would come and crush all the others and actually pulverize them into dust so that the wind would come and blow all the dust away and there'd be nothing left of any of that. And there would just be the everlasting kingdom by the stone that was cut without hands. And so those are, the, those are all the kingdoms that will ever dominate the earth. And so we've lived through the first one of Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon being in total world domination. And so now we come to the point where the Medo-Persians come in and take the Babylonian kingdom. So this is Daniel maybe 65, 68 years after, not quite that long, probably 65 years after he had given that interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. And now he's lived long enough to see the fulfillment of the first change of power that he had no idea who he was speaking about. You know, when he gave the interpretation, he said, you're Babylon, but then there will come other kingdoms. And he describes those kingdoms in very... Um, little detail, because he has no idea who they are. But you can just imagine Daniel seeing this exchange of power, first interpreting what the writing on the wall says and says, oh, this is what the first image that I ever interpreted was all about, and then actually seeing it take place and surviving into the next, the silver arms. So that's what's going on here. And you can just imagine how Daniel, I mean, he would not have missed this, right? He would, he would have recognized exactly what was taking place, that this was the second kingdom of the image that he had interpreted back when he was a youth, you know, just a, probably a middle to older teenager. And now here he is, probably 80 years old, something like that, um, and seeing it actually take place in, in his own lifetime. So I think Daniel was probably overcome with all of that, um, not... I don't think he was delighted um, that the Babylonians had been destroyed, even though they were the ones who had uh, killed many of his kinfolk, destroyed Jerusalem. We saw that all through his life, especially with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was very faithful to the state. He ran the affairs. He helped the king. Um, He he has been a good um, citizen of Babylon all these years. And so I don't think he was overjoyed when this happened. I think he just was not shocked because that's the very thing that he had interpreted to Nebuchadnezzar way before this. And so Daniel lives through this. Now, starting in in chapter 5 and verse 31, there's an issue at stake here. And this is an issue that is um, the greatest attack against the book of Daniel comes out of 531 into chapter 6. And the, and the attack goes something like this. And this is what the, the liberal theologians would try to teach. From, a, from an overall standpoint, what they say is that the writer of Daniel was confused. He didn't see the facts of history clearly. And so as he wrote the book of Daniel... 
in that confusion, he made errors in the actual historical account. Now, why would that be a big deal if there were errors in the, if, if the book of Daniel misstated the history that happened when the Medo-Persians overtook the Babylonians? What's the big deal about that? Well, God doesn't make errors. Go further than that with me. Why would, why would that be a point that the liberal theologians, and I mean it's voracious, would attack in order to, um, to discredit the book of Daniel? What, what is the big deal there? Wouldn't it be a domino effect after that? Well, well what, tell me what you mean by that, Randy. Well, a domino effect means that all things after that point Okay, that if you could prove that the Bible was in error at one point, then that leads to the crumbling of all the other truth, right? Because if it's wrong there, how do you know it's right here? Mm -hmm. So that's the big issue. So all you have to do, if you're the liberal theologian, is find one point that the Bible is incorrect in the historical account. Forget about the doctrine. Forget about everything else. But if it's wrong in history, then it's wrong potentially everywhere. And so that's why they attack this point. That's why this is so contentious at this point. And their argument goes something like this, that the writer of, of Daniel said that Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. And then Darius goes to set up satraps. Well, there are... Most of what I'll tell you comes from two different documents from that time. There is uh, the the Nabondinus Chronicle, and then there's the Chronicle of Cyrus also. And these are two trustworthy documents. They're they're just a portion of those documents, and it's about all that we have that still remains of the cuneiforms of that day and age. Now, and we'll talk about more than that. So that's what we currently today have. And they're not complete. <clears throat> they're only partial. And in several places, many places, they can't be read. They're, they're illegible because of the decay and the erosion and the wear. And so you have to piece things together to somewhat. But even the liberal theologians, as well as the conservatives, use those same documents to build their arguments. And their argument goes something like this, that there is no account in the historical documents of a person named Darius the Mede ruling over the kingdom that came after the Babylonians. There's no account of that. There's, and I'll show you. There's no time for that to have actually happened. They take this uh, 531, and then they go all the way down to the very end of chapter 6, 628, where the writer of Daniel says, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius, and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Okay, so you have Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. And their argument is this, that the way that Daniel, that the writer of Daniel writes that, these are successive kingdoms, not, you know, that you first had Darius the Mede ruling, and then you had later Cyrus the Persian ruling. Okay, so that's the argument. That's not true. That's not what the historical account says happened. So not only was Darius the Mede stated incorrectly, but that he ruled and then Cyrus came after him is another error in the historical account. Then they go over to chapter 9 and the verse 1. And I'm abbreviating, right? There, there are books written on what I'm telling you. And so I'm just trying to pull out the high points of what they write. But I, I read through their arguments, and, and if you don't know better, they're smooth and, and eloquent and just full of conjecture and assumptions that's incorrect. 
and I'll show you, I'll try and piece all this together for you. In the very first verse of chapter 9, in the first year of Darius, the son of Asherus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. So here you have, according to their interpretation, a man named Darius the Mede of Median descent who is king over the Babylonian kingdom. Right? That's what it says. Over the Chaldeans. And so they say that never happened. There is no record in either the cuneiforms or in the monuments or in any of the things that still exist from that day and age that say that Darius the Mede ruled. So the silence of the ancient documents speaks to the errors that are in Daniel. That's their argument. And now, you know, you can, you can clearly, there are ways to combat this and that you need to think about them. Go ahead, Chris. Well, the first way to combat it is that's not true. There are extra biblical historical accounts. Uh, I mean, you can go to Wikipedia and right. see that there are, like, Harp- uh, Harpocration. Right. Now, there, if you, the argument continues like this, that because of these historical errors, this book was not written in the 6th century B.C. It was actually written in the 2nd century B.C. And the reason there contain errors is because the writer in the 2nd century B.C. only had a dim view of what happened in the 6th century B.C. Now, what Chris just said is absolutely accurate, that if you go and you look at the other writers of history in 2nd century B.C., there were myriads of documents from both the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, the, um, the Medians, the Persians. There were lots of documents because all these writers of history in the 2nd century B.C., and there's like... I saw a list of at least 40 of them that cite all of these references that we no longer have today, but they had then because it was only 400 years later, really only 350 years later. And so they cite all these references. And so the the first argument against the liberal theologian is that there wasn't a dim view in 2nd century B.C. matter of fact, when Josephus wrote he still had a lot of those documents, and that's what he relied on, and he relied on the historians who had written in 2nd and 3rd century B.C. That's where Josephus gets a host of his information from when he comes later and writes. And so that argument is a great assumption that someone writing in 2nd century B.C. would not have had a clear view of what happened in 6th century B.C. It's not true. It's, it's an assumption that they make that is invalid because all the other historians had a clear view of what happened in 6th century B.C. So there has to be a way to argue from the actual historical documents to combat bad interpretation of the book of Daniel. Otherwise, at this point, if there is a historical error all the bets are off for the truth of Daniel. And that's what they're after, is to, is to knock the legs out of Daniel so that it will be shown that all of the miraculous prophecies, all of the predictions of the kingdoms, all of the detail of the, um, the Gr- Greeks and Romans and their battles that will be given later in chapter 11, all of that was written after they happened, not before. And that's the only reason they're so accurate is because it's looking at history, not looking at future. So that's the argument. That's what they're after. The the liberal theologian is after to, to deny the veracity of the book of Daniel and with Daniel goes a lot of other things because you'll remember that Jesus himself quoted Daniel. And we'll see that later, Right? And so if Christ is quoting a false document, then we got all kinds of other problems. So this is crucial arguments. 
Go ahead. David, since you researched a lot of this, probably not trying to steal your thunder. No, it's okay. Isn't Darius being more of a uh, title? Like, you know, in Jewish history, you know, just like Ben-Hur, mm-hmm. or Ben meaning son of, or... Sure. So you, you'll hear Ben all over the place if you're looking at Jewish things. Well, uh, And then there's Caesar. I mean, it's... Well, among conservatives, those would be people that trust the scriptures and believe that they're accurate and true and that Daniel belongs in the canon. You know, yeah. With this, you have to understand, there were other books written about the same time that Daniel was written, not books of the Bible. I mean, there's a few. Jeremiah and Ezekiel would have been right there in the same time frame. But there are other documents, other books that were written that have been not put into the canon of scripture because of the lack of... Um, of veracity of them, the lack of being able to confirm them, the lack of belief by the ancient church that they were the true scriptures. So there, you know, so this is just another one from a liberal standpoint that we're going to try and throw away, because there are a lot of others that didn't make it into the canon that were written about the same time. So you have to understand that that there there are other books that were discounted. Um, some put in, later taken out, depending on the church councils. And so there's, there's debate. Is um, Daniel part of the Jewish um, Bible or Jewish document, or is it just a Christian Old Testament? It depends on who you are, right? If you're a Sadducee, not so much, right? right. Only the Pentateuch is mm-hmm. true scripture. But if you're a Pharisee, yes. Then, yeah, it's part of the, the ancient scriptures. So it just depends on who you are. Because some things are good and some aren't. And the Sadducees believe only the Pentateuch. And because there's no resurrection in the Pentateuch, that's why they didn't believe in life after death. Because it's not in the first five books. Go ahead. I find the the basic problem is that these liberal commentators expect that the book of Daniel is That it's not written in chronological order. So if you look at them as individual stories, right. then you have no problem. True, but you still got this issue with Darius the Mede and Cyrus. I don't. Well, yeah, I don't either. I don't either. But you have to be able to argue against their arguments. Right? I mean, you've you got you to gotta have something on your side um, to verify what you believe. Go ahead. Because what they're, what, what they're saying is what the scripture is saying is that um, Darius the Mede immediately succeeded uh, Belshazzar. 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 Um, and they're saying that no, the liberals would say that there's no historical account of Darius the Mede even existing. Right. Because they would say that the first king was Cyrus. Right. And, and they're right. They're right. And here's the, here's the way the account goes, okay? By historical documents, and I think um, the liberals and the uh, conservatives all agree on this, okay? That this, um, that this death of Belshazzar, the invasion by the Medo-Persians, which was not, um, as some uh, liberals want to say, a bloody war and all, it wasn't. Babylon was taken with almost no fighting at all. Okay, that um, it happened on October the 12th, 539 B.C. That would be the date. I know if you have a MacArthur Bible, MacArthur says uh, October 16th is when it happened. Every other account that I looked at says October 12th. So I didn't go and see where MacArthur got his information from. MacArthur doesn't have... um, a full commentary on the book of Daniel. So I don't know where he got his information from. Maybe it's a typo in the MacArthur Bible. I don't know. But the date is October the 12th, okay, of 539 B.C. That's the day that the Medo-Persians came in and took um, the Babylonian Empire with very, very little resistance, almost no resistance whatsoever. Belshazzar is killed. Nabondinus had fled from Babylon, is later captured by the Persians, 
and dies in exile, never comes back to Babylon. But apparently the guys who were writing, he is the king, who were writing his chronicles, record some of this, of what happens during this time. So October the 12th, 539 B.C., they come in, and Babylon, the city, is captured. Cyrus is not there. Okay? There's debate about who was there, of course, um, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But 18 days later, Cyrus marches into the city of Babylon victorious. I mean, obviously, his, his armies have captured them. Um, he's out uh, not too far from there, but not in Babylon. He's not there when he gets captured. So he walks in victorious and becomes the, the king of all that was Babylon's because he's already the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. That had happened 15, 20 years earlier. Um, there's some very interesting stories about how Cyrus came into power, but he did. He actually put down the Medes, not in a bloody way, but overcame them, really tricked them. Um, there's some, like I said, there's some interesting thought about how that actually happened. But he's already the king of the Medo-Persians. When the Medo-Persians come in and they kill Belshazzar, Nabonidus flees, the kingdom is theirs. And the people don't resist that because Cyrus is known. He's a good guy. Um, you know, from their perspective, he's not, he's not like Nabonidus, who they hated, and Belshazzar, who doesn't give a flip about the kingdom. Um, Cyrus does. And so that's why there's not a whole lot of resistance because the people didn't necessarily see this as a bad thing. But notice there's only 18 days from when the city of Babylon is captured to when Cyrus marches in and is declared the king of everything. So there's not time for the reign of Darius because Cyrus is there only 18 days later. And that's, everybody agrees that is the historical account. So now what are you going to do? That there really is no time for Darius the Mede to rule before Cyrus rules. Although, by the liberal viewpoint, that's what the book of Daniel says. is that he enjoyed success in the reign of Darius the Mede and then in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So you have to speak to that, right? Go ahead. It was. I mean, there, right, there's two parts, right? One stronger than the other. We'll see that in chapters 8. When we have the ram with two horns, one is greater than the other. So one, just because you're king, King Herod was a king. Right. But we realize that was quite title only. Right. Same thing with uh, Darius. Possibly. He right. was a king by title. Right. Of media, but obviously Cyrus being the king of Persia. Right. Right, and there, there, there are two arguments from the conservative standpoint, okay? And here's the way they go. This, this is what you were alluding to, Randy, um, and MacArthur would be in this camp, is that the name Darius is not a name of a person. It's more of a title. It's sort of like being um, Caesar. You know, when people became ruler of the Roman Empire, they would become Caesar the so-and-so. Right, or Julius Caesar. You know, that's, they assumed the title of Caesar. They changed their name, basically. And so the thought is that there are at least five rulers shortly after this time period that use the name Darius. Okay? So maybe it is just a title. Go ahead, Ann. There, that is one of the thoughts, okay? I would not say it quite so dogmatically because there is a good, strong argument other than that one from the conservative standpoint. This is the one that Robert Dick Wilson would take, okay? The guy that I told you about two, three weeks ago that I've been reading and many other people also take this. So you have the thought that Darius is just a title, and it represents Caesar. Uh, represents 
Cyrus. And if you go to that chapter 6, that very last verse, 28, a fair interpretation of that verse where, you know, this is the one that says, so Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. A, a, a legitimate interpretation would be that Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius, even Cyrus the Persian. That would be a legitimate interpretation of, that, of the Aramaic in that verse. And so that would say that Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian are the same person, and it's just a title. That's a legitimate, fair interpretation of that verse. That's, that's the camp that MacArthur would be in and many others would be in. Okay? And they, they're the same person. And it's just a title as opposed to being a separate person. Go ahead. Well, how about Governor Bush couldn't have been President Bush? He couldn't have been? No, because he's Right. Right, right. So it's, it's a familial thing. It's a part of the same family. Right. And one is a governor, which is a correct statement. One is a president, which is a correct statement. Right, but that's not what's going on here, right? Because one's a Mede and one's a Persian. I'm just saying that you can have even a similar name. Sure. And still be two different people. Right, exactly, exactly. So the other argument, from a conservative standpoint, um, I'll have to look to, to get these names right. When Babylon was taken, and there's a little bit of debate about this, and this is where the conservatives would debate with one another a little bit, not in an argumentative way, just in uh, looking at the historical account, that when um, Medo-Persia came in to take over um, Babylon, I'm looking for the name, um, Excuse me a second. Yeah, but there's two generals that, and that's why I'm looking for the names because I want to make sure I get them, get them right. Um, there's there's one guy named um, Grobias, okay, and then there's another gentleman. Um, it's like Eugabus or Ubaru. That's it. That one of these guys, if not both of them, died within a few days after they took um, over Babylon. And there's, it's U-G-B-A-R-U, right? Agbaru, or however you want to say that, is one of the guys. And then another one is Grobias. These are generals in the Medo-Persian army. And they're the guys who actually marched into Babylon and took it. And then there is an account um, of one of the two of them. If they're different people, they could be the same person, some of the arguments go, died within a few days. And then the other argument that is legitimate is that maybe he died about a year and a few days later. Either one of those are legitimate arguments. MacArthur would say that... Uh, Igbaro is the guy who marched in. He died. Cyrus came in, took over everything, and Cyrus and Darius are the same person. The other argument would be that when Cyrus got there, he appointed Grobaris as the governor or as the king or as the ruler over the Chaldeans so that he would have someone there who was from his army that he trusted ruling everything. Now, we know that about a year later, maybe a year and a half later, that the son of Cyrus, which is Symbizus, is the king of Babylon. And from that point on, he rules over Babylon and then ultimately takes his dad's spot and rules over all the kingdom of Medo-Persia. So we know that. But there's this about a year, year and a half gap before that actually happens. So the thought there is that Grobias is, is the guy who is ruling and Cyrus set him up as ruler over the Chaldeans. And if you'll look at the language, 
that we've been looking at. Look at chapter 5 and verse 31 and notice the language of what it says. It says that Belshazzar's killed, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Then look at chapter 9 and verse 1, the other one that the liberals use. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asherus, of Median descent, who was what? Made king over the land of the Chaldeans, right? So, if you're going to receive a kingship, or you're going to be made king of someone, what's got to happen? Someone's got to give it to you. It's not like you went in and took it and then you received it. So the thought is this, that Cyrus comes in 18 days after the battle. Grobias is still there. If there are two different people, Yugbaru has already died. So Grobias is in control. And so um, Cyrus makes him king over the Chaldeans. Not over all the Medo-Persian Empire. It never says that. The liberals would argue, no, though, there was never a, a guy named Darius over all the Medo-Persian Empire. No argument there. This is just over the Chaldeans, just over a part of the Medo-Persian Empire, not the whole thing. And so he's made king, and he then rules for a period of time that Daniel is writing about here. Because this is immediately after Babylon falls to the Medo-Persians. It's a legitimate argument. You, you have the question then, well, if that's true, if Grobias is made the king over the Chaldeans, then why the name Darius? And what would be your answer to that? It's a title. Even if it's not a title, what would be your answer to that? May not have wanted him to be called King Agrobias. He may have been wanting him to be called the scepter holder. I mean, he may have been given a diminished. Title. He, he definitely is diminished. Okay, so the thought goes like this, and this is Robert Dick Wilson's argument, and he gives a list not of one or two or three, but of, I mean, it's extensive. It goes on and on and on and on of people who changed their name when they were made king. And I mean, it's extensive, very common thing to change your name when you become king because you want to. I don't know. Maybe it's more eloquent. I don't know. But so the thought here with that argument is that Grobias changes his name to Darius. Now, Grobias came from um, a town of Gilliam, which is not in me, not in the Median Empire back when it was, but it's just beside the Median Empire on the other side of the mountains from the Persians. So from a Persian perspective, you would have said he was a Mede, even though he wasn't in the legitimate territory of the Medes. So he becomes Darius, the one associated with the Median Empire, Darius the Mede. He changes his name. Now, you still have to answer... What about this verse in chapter 6, the very last verse of chapter 6, that says, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And what would your argument be based upon the last things I've been saying? That there is another person called Cyrus the Persian. They're simultaneous. They're not successive. You have Cyrus who's ruling over the Medo-Persian Empire and then at a lesser you have Darius the Mede, who's ruling just over the Chaldeans. Legitimate argument. Speaks to all of the points that the liberals say. One more modern day example of changing your name would just be popes. Yeah, popes all the time change their name. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and it's a common thing. Maybe not in America, not so much. But it's a very common thing for when, you, when you're coronated a king to change your name. It's also very clear about that. They happened to fight a, a battle and win against one of the Germans, and the emperor would take on the name Germanicus. Right, because he defeated them. Exactly. exactly. The Holy Roman Empire, was the, there was the Holy Roman Emperor, but then right. there was also a, a king of Germany, a king of sure. lesser... And that's what's going on here. I, this is the standpoint that I would take. Okay, and it doesn't mean I'm right. It's just, it makes more sense to me 
than any of the other arguments is that there are two kings. One is lesser than the other. And Daniel is writing about Darius as subservient to Cyrus. But they're both king. Good, David. So does the record show that this general was made king by Cyrus? He was declared. There was a declaration by Cyrus when he, when he came in on October the 30th, 539, he installed someone over the, the Chaldeans. Yes. Well, this is where things aren't so legible anymore, right? I mean, even at the exact point where Belshazzar's name should be, can't read it. And that's pretty common in these documents. And so um, you have to piece things. And again, we only have a small fragment of what was written. And there was a lot written. And it existed for hundreds of years because there are a lot of historical writers who cite all these documents and say... You know, they, they get confused because there's six guys named Grobias in this same time period. There's five named Darius. So you have to sort it out. There, there's no doubt that about 15 years after this, there is a guy named Darius who's the son of Astyages who becomes ruler. But that doesn't fit time frame wise. And so there, if the theologians, the art and liberals would say, well, see, he just got confused. He just can't see it clearly. And so he, he wrote it, but it's not accurate. If you hold to that, then you're denying the veracity of the scriptures. You're denying the veracity of this book. And, and, and why do you hold on to anything else? I mean, that's, that's what the liberals are after, is to be able to poke holes in all of this and say, see, this is not really true. There's nothing miraculous in the book of Daniel. And you have to have arguments. Recognize when people... If someone just says something, you don't have to argue against that. You can just let that go. And that's what Robert Dick Wilson did. But when someone comes with evidence, then you have to present greater evidence to defeat their arguments. And that's what he spent his life doing. That's why he would go and learn the Persian language, go and learn the Chaldean cuneiforms, so that he could go read what they couldn't read and make arguments against them. That's why, as one of you saw last week, he, you know, we're like in, he had understood 40-something languages because he would go study them just to make arguments against these people who just made this stuff up. And the, the arguments of the liberals are often based upon assumptions and on just statements from silence, which you can't support. So you have to have some evidence to speak against them. Go ahead. Robert Dick Wilson. You read his book and you'll be like, well, how do you, where do you get this stuff? I mean, he is, and, and I've just read the books on Daniel. There's two of them. There actually were three. He, was, he intended to write three of them, but he died before he could write the third one. And we only have parts of the second one. And that's the one I've been reading the most. Um, but his arguments are weighty. And he takes them point by point, if you look, this guy, if he was a debater, you would lose. I mean, there, I mean, he is, he is so uh, point on point. Here's the evidence you're wrong. You didn't, you just say you read the documents, but clearly you didn't because this is what they say. I mean, because he'd go learn the language and these other guys wouldn't. And so that's what he spent his life doing. Um, and there's a, another guy that I read that wrote in just after World War II. And he put together, I'm trying to remember his name, put together a great little summary, and his summary is based upon Robert Dick Wilson's writings. So he summarizes them in his commentary. The other guy I read, Val, uh, Val Vord, um, has a good commentary on Daniel, goes with this argument also, that it's uh, two different people, and it's a legitimate person in history. Because that's the way Daniel writes it. Notice that Darius does a lot of things in the land of Babylon, and Cyrus just simply wasn't there. I mean, that's why he put his son over it a year and a half later. He wasn't there. So that's why I go with there's two different people. I could be wrong. I mean, we'll find out when we get there, right? Because we can go ask Daniel. Where'd you get this name from, Daniel? Because this is what I believe. 
Daniel was living during this time period. Daniel was writing during this time period, mm-hmm. and he did not make a mistake. He knew the history better than anybody who came after him. He's the guy who is at the head of the Chaldean Empire and at the head of the Medo-Persian. No one had the perspective that he did. He didn't get the names wrong. And the fact that if they say that this was written in the second years later, second century BC, the level of detail suggests an eyewitness. I mean, there's just so many things that you know he talks about that you wouldn't think that someone writing that much later would be able to even conjecture certain details, like you know the, the food or what happened at a certain meal. Or and see, their argument would be, he's just making this up. Mm-hmm. This isn't real. He's just writing this stuff down and making it up out of thin air. This is not historical. Go ahead. Here's the concentric logic of the liberal. <laughs> in the fifth century, they say Daniel could not be real because it's a projection of the right. future. So therefore, they immediately discount it. Right. In the second century, they say it can't be real because the veracity of the history is wrong. Right. He's just making things up. Right. So you can't win the argument of the liberals. You can't win, but you can certainly prevent, so produce evidence that convinces you. Regardless what time and the refutes. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're just, yes. I agree. Their, their arguments don't hold weight from either perspective. Neither one. And, and, but you have, to, you have to study some of this. You have to understand some of this. Otherwise, people you know will just be duped and believe, yeah, see, there's a good strong argument that this was written in the 2nd century B.C. No, there's not. There's more evidence that it was written in 6th century B.C. And their arguments don't hold weight. <laughs> Yeah. This reminds me so much. You know, when you say they're liberal theologians, mm-hmm. they seem like false prophets in that. Well, that's their intent. Well, they, they allege, you know, they'll say, well, you know, the year that, uh, you know, that they crossed in the Red Sea, it was only three feet deep. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and it's like, regardless of that, if you believe in in Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in what you know is true, who cares if it was three or four feet deep or the spreading of the water was hundreds of feet? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's you having in your heart the faith and the knowledge, the hope of Jesus Christ, and not in man. Well, and when I say a liberal theologian, he doesn't believe in the Trinity. He doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. He he is he's an unsaved person. He may study the Bible. He may have a lot of knowledge about the history and about what's written, but this is not a believer. So that's who we're talking about here. And their intent is to bring down the scriptures instead of elevate them. Remember, Jesus Christ quoted Daniel. And if Daniel was wrong and the book isn't valid, then Christ isn't valid in his quote of him. And so that, so let's start with the scissors, right? And let's cut out a whole bunch of stuff. He quoted Moses too. Well, yeah, I mean, so Genesis. Yeah, right. Well, you have creation. You got to be crazy. We all know what happened over thousands, over millions of years, right? I mean, that's the argument. And I even, hey, I'm a, I'm a new Earth guy. Okay, I'll admit it to anybody. I'm a new Earth guy. There are no millions of years. Okay. There are, there are no millions of years. God created the electromagnetism coming from the stars when it was almost here. Not that it had to come from the stars. He could do whatever he wants to. So I'm a new earth guy. I'm like 10,000 years. I mean, there, there'd be people who are strong believers who would strongly disagree with me. That's okay. I'm a very new earth guy. I believe in the literal account and not a long period of time. <coughs> What's that? Chicken or the egg? Both. Yeah, yeah, both. Both create the egg and the chicken. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's the same way that Randy's talking about. I don't know, but I think in, in my realm, I rarely run into people who are capable of arguing. You know, just they rather put up what you said. They give an assumption or an opinion. Right. Because in their human mind, Right. And all I can tell them is when the seems 
It's a good thing. That's a good response. You know, recognize this, though. In the religious world, there are many, many more who would be in the liberal camp than in the conservative camp. The conservative camp is a great minority, small. The other liberal camp is large, voluminous. And so there has to be some people like Robert Dick Wilson who have been given a mind by God and who can study the scriptures and can study the history and can study the languages to make strong arguments. And those are the guys you need to read. Because can I go back and do all this research? No chance. So I read four or five guys who can. And then you build your arguments and you base your beliefs on the facts that they are able to present that the liberals would never admit to. Go ahead. I feel like it's generous to call them liberal religion. You should say heretics and orthodox. Sure, sure. I mean, denying the scripture, what the scripture says, they're heretics, they're false teachers. It's not, you know, you should, no creeds. Well, let me go a little further. In the Southern Baptist seminaries, okay, the ones that supposedly our dollars would go to support, but they don't, that the liberal theologian is the majority in those schools. Mm-hmm. You know that for a fact? Yeah. 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 Mm. So that's not uncommon. That's pretty well known. Um, you, can, you certainly go to the founders and find lots of names listed and lots of people pointed out. Um, this is why Southern Seminary, when they... Um, when Moeller went in, he took all most of the professors who were there. They had tenure. He couldn't fire them. So he simply set them aside and brought in new guys. They're still there, but they don't get to teach. The good guys, the new guys, get to teach, the ones who have conservative doctrine. But the, the liberals are still there because they had tenure. So they didn't fire them. Many of them have now left because it's been a while. And when you don't get to teach and you've been there for a long time, then you you know, you're arrogant and you want to teach, so you go somewhere else. So, um, yeah, it's not uncommon. The place where Shane's getting his degree, Southeastern, very, very difficult to find um, a sound-minded guy that he could do his thesis underneath. But he found one. So very difficult to find a good professor. And even in in the classes that he sits in, most of the arguments are liberal. And then, of course, he writes from a totally different perspective, gets B's and C's because of that. But nevertheless, he stands true to his doctrine. Go ahead. Um, since theology means the study of God, <laughs> I think it's impossible to study God without believing Scripture. You would think they go hand in hand, right? But they don't. They don't. Because uh, God, for his own purposes has allowed men to study the scriptures, to learn languages, to make arguments against the scripture so that the true believers would be distinct. Um, um, my nephew is actually studying Hebrew Bible at the University of Georgia mm-hmm. in the master's program, mm-hmm. and he's studying under Jewish professors. Sure. But I think that his course of study has led him away from God Could. more than to God through his study of Hebrew ancient scriptures. Well, that's the danger, right? That's the danger. Is because if you're being fed a steady diet, then that's typically the way you will go. So very difficult to stay true when you when that's all you ever hear. So that's why we talk about these things, right? Where's the scripture in all of this, David? Well, this is the scripture, right? These are the arguments that are made from these these very verses. And so if there's not an answer, then we really have nothing to stand on. But there is an answer, and there's several of them. And which one is exactly accurate, like you said, doesn't really matter. But there are multiple arguments from a reform perspective that answer the critics of the book of Daniel. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. The truth to un- 
understand and support and um, be a, have an apologetic answer. The scripture is there, but we have to seek it. And there are many who aren't seeking that. Right. And it works. But the truth is there. Just seek it. Well, be ready to give an account. Why do you believe what you believe? Got to be a reason, right? Well, because someone taught me that. So that's not a good reason, right? You have to go deeper than that. You have to do more research on your own than that. You can't just believe something because someone stood in the pulpit and said it. You know, I've told many of you this before. I've, I had to discard a whole lot of baggage that I've been taught. Because once I got to the position I'm at and started teaching verse by verse, those things started to crumble. So I just let them crumble just discarded them because they were thoughts of men not not out of the scripture and so you exchange your good theology for what the bad well-intentioned people taught me the doctrine that I had but they were wrong but they were well-intentioned they didn't do it on purpose they just weren't learned they didn't study enough and so hopefully the kids that grew up in this church is a little different and they won't have to discard a whole bunch of stuff they were taught by people who had bad doctrine. And I think it speaks to the power of the scripture that, you know, scripture says that all, all scripture is God breathed, it's inspired, it's profitable for reading and teaching and reproof. And I can think of so many people that have given testimonies for that were determined to prove the Bible to be inaccurate, to prove the Bible to not be God's work, who were then converted by the very scriptures that they were seeking to destroy. Mm-hmm. And That's so, the grace of God, right? Right, it is. Power of God in His Word, and I just think that you know, even you know, going through things like this might seem tedious and might seem like why are we doing this? But it's important to know, first of all, that our word, the Word of God, is is accurate and it's it's true. And there's no harm in looking at the historical accuracy to show that it is true. But at the same time, that even if supposedly none of the records show that it's true, God's Word is still true, and let every other man be a liar. Well, when you, if, you, if you go through the de- a detailed study like I did this week, you come out on the other side, a lot of work, a lot of detail, but joy in doing it, but you come out on the other side more firm. And so the things that maybe there is no argument from history, you have no problem accepting and believing because you, the, what you have com- studied and compared everywhere is accurate. And so you come out stronger and more firm in your belief in the scriptures rather than the other way. But you can look, read enough of the other arguments and don't do your own study, and that's the way you'll begin to drift. So you have to be very careful because the louder voices today are against the scripture, not for it, even in, even in the Southern Baptist Convention. David. Why would we ever debate, is the word of God inerrant? I mean, why would we, are authoritative? Why would we ever even debate that? But we are. Yeah, one thing that um, had been coming up in, in our family uh, for a little while was we had heard people in churches who had uh, grabbed in the book of Thomas as an yeah. example. Yeah. And so I went to the book of Thomas Mm -hmm. because I had some work on an automobile, one of our cars, and this guy said he was a Christian and he loved the book of Thomas. Thomas. Apocryphal. So then I went to the uh, Liberty University site and some others and reached Hobel, NOE. Yeah. And, And when I started reading the book of Thomas as an example, it was... It was so clear, praise the Lord, that it wasn't part of the canonized word, and I could see it. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the verses, almost humorous, is where it says Peter says to Jesus, "When you leave, who should we look to?" And Jesus says, "Look to James, mm-hmm. for he is the reason why the universe and the earth were made, yeah. were created." Not quite right. So, so what I'm all I'm saying is. You, you can go in and, and look at some of these books. You can see that there's not a consistency in the spirit and in pointing to Jesus Christ and in the word, like with Luke, well, with and, Matthew, and, and if, John, the Gospels. And if you, go to, if you go to your Catholic friend and look at his Bible, 
the Apocrypha typically will be in there as true scripture, mm-hmm. all of it. So, yeah, just think about that. Okay, next week, chapter 6, verse 1, right? <laughs> Thanks for your time.